Thank you so much for coming back to our next episode of Grabbing the Mic with Nikki and Carrie. Today, we have a special guest. Our special guest is Melissa. And Melissa is going to talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, some of the issues that are pressing our um, Native American brothers and sisters and um, uh, talk about the issues surrounding COVID with that specific group of people and um, just really like we're going to open up a can of worms, I think, today. Um, <laughs> Melissa, can you um, introduce yourself and just kind of tell us a little bit about what you do and, and just who you are? I agree. Neck now, Melissa Eidman. Hi, my name is Melissa Eidman. Um, I am a member of the Yurok tribe located in Northern California. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Sacramento, so I'm an urban Indian, but all of my family lives back home on our reservation. And, um, you know, being Native American is probably the most important part of my identity. Um, my my mom raised me to be um to to know where i came from um and so our reservation is definitely my home i go back in fact i'm hoping to go back next week um but i am a medical student at stanford school of medicine um and i'm i'm actually here recording from roseville california uh back home um with my partner for the weekend that's great. Stanford is an amazing school. Um, yeah, my my boss actually went to Stanford, so he's always at the Stanford football games. <laughs> it is a fun place to be. I can't wait to go to another to another football game. Melissa, where's your where's your? You said your family's on a reservation. Where is that? Um. So my like closest family actually does not live on the reservation. Like my nuclear family, my mom lives in Grass Valley, California, but my reservation is in. Um, Northern California, almost up to the Oregon border in Humboldt County. Um, it's a little, uh, it's, it's along the Klamath River. That's gorgeous up there. It is. It's God's country for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Melissa, what, so tell me about you being a med student. What, what are you studying? Oh, yes. So I am a second year medical student. Um, in fact, we just finished the last of our didactic classes just last Ooh, week. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I will be starting my rotations. So um, going around to the different departments in the hospital as a medical student, um, just in two weeks. Um, not going to pretend that I'm not nervous about it. Um, but <laughs> I um, am going into medicine, um, you know, actually it has a lot to do with uh, my Native American identity. Um, growing up, um, like I said, I grew up in Sacramento, but uh, my mom took us home pretty much whenever she could. Like we weren't, we didn't have a ton of money and it cost a lot of money to, you know, just drive the six hours there. But um, just about every three day weekend and anytime we had more than three days, we would go home and spend time with family there. Um, but, you know, growing up there, I, I heard about, you know, the terrible health care. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say as a asterisk, it has improved substantially since I was a kid, um, the healthcare services up there. But, um, you know, my, my grandfather up until, um, when he passed, uh, you know, called the doctors who worked up there rejects. Um, and, 
was adamantly opposed to going to the hospital. Um, The way that healthcare or like doctors being placed on the reservation works is really interesting. There are definitely um, people like me who have strived their whole lives to become a doctor to work with our community. Um, but there's also a um, loan repayment program if you work in um, Indian health or in rural health. There are other repayment programs as well, um, where if you just go and work for these communities for a set number of years, you get an amount of your loan repaid. Okay. Um, and so what that means is you get a lot of unexperienced doctors who... Um, aren't really passionate about the community they're working with. And even like, I will admit, um, we're not always the easiest people to work with. And that is um, mostly due to, you know, generations of trauma that um, are very ingrained within our healthcare system. And especially a healthcare system that is run by um, white people and, by the government, it is not particularly um, well trusted. Right, sure. That and makes so, sense. so can you just tell me? So, for us white people who have zero experience with reservations and how the whole thing works, I'm going to be super elementary and basic right now. If I was to um, take a tour, of a reservation, which I've never been on one. And I don't think a lot of people who are listening now probably have um, had the privilege to actually witness it ourselves. What is it like? Like what? So you you drive to a reservation. Is there like a check in? Is there is it just property that you could anybody can access? Or how how does it all work? That is a really great question. Um, So You know, every reservation is a little different. However, um, whenever, like, obviously I speak only from my own experiences. I've not visited all of the reservations in the United States. Um, I have been to a few, but, you know, many of your listeners, we probably have been on reservations and you might have just driven through without really knowing. Um, But what it is, it's it's complicated because it, it is sovereign land. It is um, land that is set aside for uh, Native Americans. And like its place in the United States is actually like really interesting legal stuff um, mm-hmm. that I don't fully understand. So I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. But um, my reservation I will speak to is uh, it's the Yurok Reservation. I mentioned a Yurok. Um It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, My reservation is very rural. So it is mountains and trees and we um, are along the Klamath River. Um, We start at the coast and then we go to where the uh, Klamath and the Trinity meet. It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, But I will say, um, as with a lot of rural spaces, um, economically, not super advanced, um, which you know, is both a blessing and a challenge for the community. Like, um, speaking about like its beauty, we don't have a lot of like buildings that have been put in place or um, you, you're driving on, on a lot of gravel roads or dirt roads and it's, it's gorgeous. 
Um, but what that means is economically for the people who live there, it can be a challenge, um, you know, finding a job and supporting your family in the like colonized sort of standard way. Sure. Um, a lot of times what it is, is that you are, you know, hunting and fishing for, for food, for your family and growing your own food. Um, and you know, speaking of food, the uh, cost of food there is quite expensive. There's not a lot of grocery stores and things like that. Um, in fact, where my family is from, we just have a, a tiny little like uh, convenience store size store um, that is close by. And in order to go to like a full size grocery store, which I'm sure most people would view as a small grocery store, right. um, you have to drive about 30 minutes. So are, so these building, I'm in construction, actually, that's my background. And so this is intriguing to me. I'm just curious. So the buildings that are on, on the reservation, are they built by uh, the Native American people themselves? Is there private contractors that are outside the community that are able to build? Or how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so um, I think it definitely depends on the uh, tribe. Sure. Um, for our tribe, we have um, a lot of actually very, very talented um, folks who are members of our tribe who have like contracting companies and who are very talented builders. And so um, a lot of times, especially on private land, people are building their own property or building their own homes. Mm -hmm. um, we also have um, the the reservation that is right next door. The where where my people are, uh, there are uh, quite a few tribes. Um, California actually has a ton of Native American tribes. Right. Um, but just in you know our region of California, there are a lot of tribes, and the tribe right next door, the Hoopa tribe they have a um, modular plant that unfortunately is currently um, not working. Um, they they shut down um, economic troubles, um, but hopefully they will open again. Right. Um, so they built a lot of homes, especially for um, our tribal housing. Um, and then as far as like building of uh, like regulated buildings, like, you know, our um, health centers, mm -hmm. things like that, um, they put out contracts um, and applications. So right. preference goes to Native folks. Um, I think it's regardless of tribe. Right. Um, so there are some contracting companies that are owned and operated by Native folks who um, put in bids for these things. So preference will go to those. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm in. Yeah. So in estimating, um, that's my line of business. And so uh, there are a lot of projects that we get asked to bid on um, and we have to list whether we are disadvantaged group or a women owned or small business, a minority, um, and you get preferential treatment or you can um, try to get um, uh, like lower tier subcontractors that are of that community to try to meet those percentage, you know, those thresholds to, to kind of meet the requirements of the building. So it's, it is interesting how many, uh, especially the disadvantaged and minority um, requirements there are in buildings nowadays. So I, I feel like it's a step in the right direction, right? But there's always loopholes to, to everything. 
Um, so for the, so let's get back to the medicine part. That's, that's the super important part and very interesting to me and your passion, obviously. Um, so I, I, as with every podcast, because I will admit every single time that I know probably less than most people about (laughs) some things and I don't want to speak out of the corner of my mouth without really knowing, knowing some facts. So I actually did some research. Um, and we were talking about, Nikki and I were talking about COVID and just, um, and you hear a news article here and there about um, the communities that have been hit the hardest and are having the slowest um, bounce back, you know, from, from the pandemic. Um, and one of the things I read that was staggering to me was um, that Native Americans are three to five times more likely to be diagnosed with COVID than non-Hispanic whites. And the mortality rate is twice as high. Um, and that's awful and devastating. And um, I know as I was reading it, even smaller tribes are having like even harder times. And it just seems like the more alienated or the more um, pushed aside communities are just struggling so much harder than the vast majority of, you know, white people mostly. Um, and, and can you speak to that? And why do you think that is? I know that's a loaded question, a lot of things, a lot of things to go into it, but you know, I think it's super important to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want, I want to say that I am absolutely no uh, authority on the subject, um, especially as, as a medical student, I've been quite, um, busy uh but i I have tried to tried to keep a eye on these things and understand what's going on um and absolutely you're correct the native american community has been hit insanely hard by this and um both in you know having you know cases of covid but also having higher mortality rates and i think that goes for um like all people of color and in communities where um really healthcare is less um, available or accessible, really. Um, and I think um, Navajo Nation is one that I, I've seen in the news quite a bit. They uh, had very, very terrifying rates um, early on and they, they're they improving a lot. And I think that the uh, measures that they've taken have been incredible to really decrease the uh, mortality rate. But um, one of the biggest contributors, I think, to both the um, higher rates of COVID and the mortality rate is the healthcare that's available in these, um, you know, reservation spaces, a lot of them being very rural and very far away from um, healthcare. Uh, I will say, as devastating as this has been i um have also been really impressed by the response from tribes um to the pandemic i think um a lot of times they were able to be more active and more proactive than um like even our county and federal and state governments were in responding like speaking for my tribe um as soon as they realized that you know, this pandemic was happening, they closed the reservation. Um, and and we are on a um, county road. And so, of, like, of course, the county road stayed open so people could, you know, drive through our reservation space. But they made it 
um, so that people who didn't live on the reservation, even folks like myself, who, you know, my family has property there, my, my mom has property there, um, they asked us not to come. To make sure as much as they could, for sure. Yeah, to make sure that people weren't like coming who you know had COVID and could bring it into the community, and that's because they knew the limitations of their healthcare system there. Um, On you know my our part of the reservation, it's uh, Wichita, California. If anyone feels like looking it up, it's gorgeous. (laughs) I've never. Um, Uh, We have a. A pretty small, I think we have two uh, room clinic that is located within our, um, you know, tribal office there. Um, it's very small. And in order to, you know, get to like a larger hospital, you're looking at traveling at least an hour. And that hospital located in Humboldt is, was, um, pretty compacted with patients early on. Um, Humboldt was was uh, a high COVID place early on in the pandemic. Um, and so they did a really incredible job in containing it. And, you know, there weren't a lot of outbreaks on our reservation. Um, and so I think as much as there are devastating stories to tell. A lot of lives have been lost um, in our communities. There's also a lot of stories about how um, proactive and community-driven the work to keep our our people safe has been. Um, Yeah, I think that's so, so important to tell too, is the, the accomplishments that came from this too. I'm sure like the quick thinking of, you know, the I don't know if it's a council or the quick thinking of the, you know, tribal authorities um, to close down the reservation probably saved a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of one of my good friends who is also a, a Yurok woman, um, I worked for her for a while um, for the California Consortium for Urban Indian Health. Um, her name is Virginia Hedrick, and I really encourage you and your listeners to um, look her up. She's she's incredible. She's the executive director at the consortium. Um, she immediately um, started making videos and sharing them on Facebook, and I think you can find her on YouTube too. Okay. Um, but she, as a person who understood public health, I. I think that she has her MPH. No, I know that she has her MPH. Um, And knowing that our community was being kind of left out of the national narrative originally, um, started making videos for Native people explaining what COVID was, explaining how to keep keep yourself safe, how to keep your family safe, and really um, rooted in our values, um, which I think is so important that that messaging came in that way. Um, Like talking about protecting our elders, our elders are our keepers of knowledge, they share our stories, they have our language. um, And they have so much they have so much more knowledge to pass down and knowing that our elders were at the highest risk, like talking about how important it is for an individual to be safe and to like to keep our community safe, because we do have a really high population of elders who who would be at risk if you know the virus came into our communities and so her work was i think incredibly important do you 
I'm glad you brought that up. I actually, Nikki and I were in um, Virginia City, Nevada, um, last weekend with some friends of ours. And um, when we were driving home um, through Tahoe, we heard a commercial on the radio. And it was obviously a female um, elderly Native American woman who was talking about, you know, family dinners and how, you know, we had to put them on hold and how important they are. And, um, you know, this is how we teach our young youngsters how to cook our traditional meals and we visit and we talk and how um, important it is to kind of um, get vaccinated um, as an elder. And it struck me that the way that you put it where she spoke in a way that spoke specifically to the Native American community um, and how um, I wonder just like the narrative with explaining COVID to the masses if it was if it could have been um, you know um, specifically worded in different ways for different communities that would mean more or that would kind of strike home a little bit more do you think that that um, that's a fair way of looking at it. Yeah, I do. And I, I think absolutely. I think that um, we were able to use our knowledge of that uh, kind of strategy to start with. I think um, like organizations like the California Consortium for Urban Indian Health. And um, we also have a, uh, the California Rural Indian Health Board. i all of my Native American health knowledge is all rooted in California, uh-huh. um, have been working, um, you know, to address the opioid pandemic for for quite some time, wow. um, which is which is uh, another thing that has uh, disproportionately affected Native American communities. Um, and so they have are like they've done the research to know that there's messaging that's going to be better received from uh, our, to our communities um, from, you know, these national organizations, these statewide organizations, because um, there is a lot of mistrust, especially for, um, you know, health and, uh, you know, wellness things um, from our communities to, um, the federal government who is you know, ultimately responsible for providing our health care. Um, and so it's, it's been really important that they've done that work and they were able to use that knowledge that they have um, put together over the years to do their best to contain um, the virus as much as possible. Right. So Melissa, I want to kind of switch gears with um, some, some ideas that I have here. Um, I know that when I was, there seems to be this poll in, especially with white people, I'm, I can only speak for myself, which I'm white, I identify as white. Um, but I was raised to think that I was my whole life German and Native American. And I always was pulled more towards the Native American side because I always thought it was so much cooler. Even the teachings, like you don't ever, you know, take more than you, than you can use and just live off the land, like all of those teachings. And I was raised my whole life by my grandma, who was the one who always told me even that she was, 
you know, kidnapped by Indians on the Missouri River, she called it. <laughs> um, and, and I would even question her, like, Grandma, well, why do we have light skin and blue eyes? And she'd tell me, well, we're the, we're known as the black-haired, blue-eyed Indians, and we're up from Canada, and all, like, these big stories. And even in school, I was like, I went to, like, an all-white school, and I was the only person who identified as Native American. So, of course, the teacher was like, all right, well, you present your your Native American side so I had my little foam board and I did my little presentation to the school I even spoke in the native language which I found out later was actually pig Latin and not (laughs) American because grandma's a liar um and then even when I got older you know I'd always questioned it and then I went and had the 23 and me done um and just to find out that I was like it came back like I was 0.3 native slash east asian um what do you i and you see this a lot every time i see or i'm talking to a white person they're like oh yeah yeah i'm cherokee indian and that's what i was told i was cherokee and blackfoot um we're always told white people that we're all native do you hear that a lot in your community like, what do you guys think you're you're really native so what do you what do you guys think about that yeah, I very much appreciate this question. Um, it is. I was actually just talking with a good friend about this um, the other night. It is a really, really common thing to happen, and there—I mean, there are a lot of fair-skinned, blue-eyed um, native folks, and so not discounting that at all. Um, I myself am very um, white-passing. I've, I've got a nice year-long tan, but um, I can operate in white spaces without being noticed. Though I do get a lot of um, what are yous, uh, people wanting to know exactly why I have a year-long tan. Um, but it is so common for people when they find out that I'm Native American to tell me a story about, you know, being the great-granddaughter of a Cherokee princess or... Um, you know, having having stories of Native American and their family. And I think um, it's very interesting and it's kind of a running joke in Native communities of people who have no idea about our culture to um, have these stories passed down. And I think that Native American identity is a really interesting thing in that they're like even um, having a 23andMe, especially since 23andMe has come out and all these like ancestry and uh, genetic testing that you know estimates your percent of um, different ethnicities, um, people have found that they have Native American blood. Um, and what is super challenging about that is that Native, being Native American is not just an ethnicity, it's it's a culture. And I think it's great that you, um, growing up, had this um, ideal ingrained in you around like only taking how much you can, or how much you need, and um, the importance of our land. And like, those are values that should be shared um, outside of our culture, for sure. Um, we, we, you know, we have a big problem in our, our world about consumption and about, um, overutilizing our land and, you know, destroying the planet that we should definitely be addressing. Um, but it is, it's so much more than that. There's, there's a, there's a culture that gets passed down through our elders and, you know, language that is not pig Latin. Um, <laughs> Uh, 
those things are really important. And so when people find out they're Native American, I, I always have a hard time. There's a um, wonderful scholar, her name is Kim Tallbear, who who speaks on this. Um, and she she's actually currently in Canada. Um, but she she talks about how um, Native American identity is is far more than a uh, a DNA test, and there's no there's no substitute for the community, and and it's it's a challenging place to be because you you know you don't want to identity police people you know who find out that they're Native American, and and that is something to be proud of. Um, what's important to note though is that it has not always been viewed that way. Um, there's a really long history of Native Americans being um, murdered and having their, their culture st stripped from them. It was illegal to speak our languages for a long time, to, to practice our dances, um, those things. And so now it is so hip to be Native American. So people are really proud and, and want to like dive into that Native American culture. But you, it's insulting a little bit mm -hmm. in that like, but when things were hard, you got to pretend you weren't. Sure. Um, which is a lot of the time why people have, uh, like who find that they're Native American um, through like a DNA, DNA test um is that you know their their ancestor who was native american or ancestors um wanted to protect themselves and protect their families from from the atrocities that were occurring to native communities and so if they were able to get away with hiding the fact that they were native they did and and like i'm not saying that that's a bad thing like i'm i'm so happy that they were able to protect their families from things but um I think it's difficult to claim a culture um, as as an identity when you don't know anything about it. And I feel for people who like really want to know that culture once they find out that they're Native American, like you really want to dive in and understand where your people are from and things like that. Um, and that's really hard to do because there's not a DNA test to do that. Like you can do a DNA test and find out for, that you're Native American. And most of the time you're going to get a response that says, like you said, uh, Native American or Asian. Um, and, and you want to know about your history. I mean, I mean, that is your history, your family's history. But like the science isn't there to tell you who your tribe is. Um, and so, and so that's really difficult for some folks. I think you really hit the nail on the head actually in just talking to you because I know with me being raised to think that I was white and native, well, I feel like as white people, we don't really have any culture. So then you almost grab on to the, okay, well, there's Native American and they have a culture. And like you said, right now it's a, it's a very cool you know, a very cool culture that comes with these stories and there's this history and the, the, the just culture, like you said, and I think as humans and especially white people, we're, we're trying to grasp that sense of, of, of culture and where, where do we belong? Because I mean, even with like me being German and native, I'm like even thinking tattoos. I was like, well, if I'm German, am I going to get like a bratwurst and a bearstein? Like, that's not cool. But if I'm native, I can get a teepee or I can get like I got the red moon because I did all this research on what the hunter's moon and you see, you know, and what the teepee represented and all that kind of stuff. Um, so so I think you're right. I think a lot of people grab onto it to to feel 
like we have culture because I think as white people we just genuinely don't have culture yeah I, I you know I I've thought about that and I've I've had conversations with folks um I I was really interested in genetics as an undergrad um and went to a internship as it's called the summer internship for indigenous um people in genomics I think saying is the short term for that and you know we talk about these things and um I think I think it's just harder to identify your culture um when you're right because i mean germans do have a very rich culture it's just um not as salient i think in the united states as we've um like fetishized fetishized i'm, I'm not sure if that's, that's a word, right word. um <laughs> uh, native american culture and so it's you know like, you, when you think German, do you think bratwurst? Do you think... I think Hitler, uh, Hitler and sausage. And Hitler. neither one of those do I like. Um, and and yeah. to be honest, when you, when you think Native American, you brought up teepees. People think of um, dream catchers. But the truth is, is that the Native American culture is not one culture. We've got, you know, sure, over yeah. 571, I think, was the last count, tribes in the United States. And we all have distinct cultures we all come from distinct places and our stories are different our you know our creation um was in different places we have different relationships with the creator and like all of these things and so like for me my tribe um dream catchers and teepees are not a thing um right. you know yeah. we like big cultural things for us are you know salmon fishing and mm -hmm basket weaving and um you know making things from bear grass and you know our medicines are are so different from the medicines that you'll find on the plains or in you know the south and like yeah, there's it's, it, so it's just like to think about this land as, as large as it is um like and then looking over at europe um you know size and population wise, like we, we were a populated land and it was very spread out. And so to think that we shared one culture is just so funny. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a good point. That yeah. brings like another funny native joke is that people ask if I speak Native American all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, which one? You, you think that we all spoke the same language? That's right. insane. Um, and, you know, I introduced myself at the beginning of this podcast in my, my tribal language um, in Iraq, but I don't speak my language fluently. And that makes me really sad. I hope to, I hope to learn it one day um, yeah. to be able to speak fluently. And we do have a lot of language revitalization work that's been going on for the last, I think, 15 years um, in partnership with Berkeley's linguistics program. Um, but speaking our language is something that is is really a life goal of mine and of many people um, right. who I know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I Nikki was talking about her experience with um her grandma telling her that she was Native American. And I I had one similar, but it was, uh, well, first of all, I was also told that I was Sioux Indian for since I was born. And I um, really am like, have like the eyes and the tan and the dark hair and the, the dark eyes and all that stuff. And I don't look like anybody else in my family. And so 
Um, my mom always just swore up and down, but 23andMe had had other information, um, and I had zero. I mean, there was nothing. So who knows? Who knows where I, what where I came, got my looks? But um, my mom and I were in we were in um, London. Actually, we we're on a bus. And this woman, this young girl, young lady, I should say, was sitting kind of close to us. She was talking and she had this really thick accent. And my mom asked her, oh, my, you know, I lo- you have such a beautiful accent. Where are you from? And she said, I'm from Scotland. And my mom, my mom proceeds to tell her how, oh, that's that's wonderful. We have we're Scot- Scottish. We you know, we were related to this like king and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh, my. And, and she literally looked at my mom and was like, all Americans say that. <laughs> and it was just so funny and instantly I was like it's so true right because we're grasping at some lineage and grasping at like something concrete that can tell us like where we came from because we are all immigrants in this country and we all come from from different places and we're all coming you know intermingled and it's, it's it is such a desperate feeling to find out where your people come from and when your people are spread out all over the place or um, when there isn't like, you know, the lineage sort of stops at a certain place and you can't go farther back. It is, it is a little, it's sad, you know, to not have a cool story, you know, to come from. So I, I get why people, uh, as you worded it, fetishize, like I get why people like kind of grasp onto that because it is, so cool and it's so noble and it's just such a neat thing but with that lineage comes you know so much so many you know so much heartache and devastation uh same with with the black community you know there's so much pain um and trauma there so I mean it's it is it's like a trendy thing almost to have Native American blood um but there's something more noble about it than just being able to check that box, you know, on your IRS form or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I I think I feel for folks who don't have the history that I have. And I, I, I think this, you know, speaks to um, kind of where I am in the world and how I got here is that my entire life has been guided by, you know, this, um, part of my identity, like my desire to go into medicine, to be a family practice doctor so that I can serve my people has been like integral to shaping everything that I've done from, you know, as far back as I can remember. And I have this strength from um, my ancestors that I feel in my bones. And like, sometimes I, I look back and I get kind of overwhelmed. I remember one, one time I was on a I was on a plane to my very first med school interview. Um, and, you know, I was, you know, going through my resume and like trying to think of great stories to tell my interviewers and just realized that I've always been in the right place at the right time. Like the right opportunity presented itself and I was able to take advantage of it and, you know, got involved in some really cool things but I felt like I didn't do any of that. Like it just was there and I I was able to apply for it and I got it and like all super awesome. And I realized in that moment, like I 
talk about and I hear my my people talk about how we are guided by our ancestors and we're the answer to our ancestors' prayers and all of these things. And I realized this is not me. Like none of this has been me. It has all been like my ancestors who have been like setting the stage for me to be in these places at these moments when I would have these opportunities to get to where I am because this is like, that's how I knew I was on the right path. And I think that that's so fortunate. And I have, you know, some of my classmates and I have talked about who like, they don't know exactly what they want to do. They're like, they, they know they want to be doctors. Obviously they're in med school, but like, what what specialty to go into, what community they want to serve, where they want to be. Um, they feel so lost. And I've just never felt that feeling of lost. Like I've always known what the goal was because I've been guided by this. And so I feel for people who don't have that. And it, it, it makes me really sad um, that they have to go through that struggle. But at the same time, um, it is definitely something that I find, uh, I, I wouldn't say offensive, but uh, uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> at this time in, in the world to, um, especially like some, something like being Native American where, um, you know, there are people who are very Native American appearing and then there are, you know, lots of Native Americans who are white passing like myself. Um, and so there's no like check to, to be like, oh no, you're not actually Native American because you can't do that. And so people can just claim this part of my identity that I feel so proud of. And it is very strange and people do it like, um, at Stanford, I've heard of, I mean, I don't no one came and talked to me and told me that they did this. Um, But I've heard of people who have, you know, checked boxes saying that they're Native American because they think that they're going to have better access to things. And that is like so bizarre to me to claim an identity that doesn't, that you don't identify with. It's just um, like super problematic. So I see both sides of this like thing where I'm like, heartbroken that someone doesn't have this this guiding force um of culture i mean a lot of people do find that guiding force in like things like religion or spirituality or you know even just humanity which i think is probably the most important guiding force um doing you know work to better just life for all humans um but it is it's it's a difficult line to be on to like desire so much to have that strong connection to a culture and then to just claim it (laughs) that like our history right you just sort of just the white people just sort of like um i want that i'm just gonna take it yeah i think that's what it is it's like stop just (laughs) enough is enough it's like you guys have been doing this since you landed here can you stop just (laughs) taking i mean now you're just taking everything hey melissa i was wondering in your in the native american culture do people discriminate do people in your own culture discriminate against you because you can present white like you know like in the black community if you're too light-skinned some people go against you and if you're too dark some other people go against you do you have that in the native american culture also 
That is such a good question. Um, it depends where you are, of course. It depends what community you're in and, you know, what environment you're in. There's a lot of weird um, native politics uh, is what I call it. Um, there is a thing about, like, how dark you are, of course, um, and, like, how much you look like a native. But um, something that I've always struggled with um, and have finally come to terms with, with the help of um, my sweet friend, Virginia Hedrick, who I uh, worked for in urban Indian health, I have always been really ashamed of being an urban Indian, mm-hmm. um, not being raised on my reservation, even though I've always been very close with my reservation, having you know been there, like I've... That, that's my home. Like, uh, I'm there often. Um, I was raised in the city and they, they call my grandpa. Um, he, he stopped calling me this, but, um, when I was really little, he used to call me a sidewalk engine, which, um, I urge you, please don't ever call a native American person an engine. Okay. Um, <laughs> Noted. <laughs> but he, um, he would call me a sidewalk engine. And I, you know, when I was really little, I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew that it was something I didn't want to be. Um, and, and where that term comes from is that like, I described a little bit of our reservation, but there aren't sidewalks <laughs> up on res- my reservation. Like there's not, the, the things that are paved are not for walking. Um, so, like it was a it was a way of you know talking about an urban Indian, but what it really talks about is like you're different from us. Like you you have a different story, and that's totally true. I do have a different story. I had different struggles, um, and would never ever claim to have the um, the life of Res life. Um, it is it's very distinct from my own. Um, but in working in urban Indian health, which um, I, I didn't tell you, I went to Stanford undergrad. I transferred to Stanford undergrad from community college. And um, after graduating, I was a John Gardner fellow and I worked for the Sacramento Native American Health Center and SICUI, the California Consortium for Urban Indian Health. And it was in working with urban Indians, um, particularly with Virginia, who uh, did grow up on my reservation and who now has dedicated her, her life and her work to, um, really supporting those native Americans who live in urban spaces, which, you know, in California is quite numerous. Uh, the majority of native Americans live in an urban space and, um, in California in particular, we have the highest population of urban Indians. And so, like there, I learned so much more about that community and, you know, finally developed this pride in, in that part of my identity. And so um, I think getting back to your question, there there are lots of tribal politics that go into kind of identity policing, really, mm. um, where, you know, it's tragic to me. Um, and maybe that's because I've, I felt so uh, negatively about my own identity, but things like blood quantum, and if you're not familiar with that term, um, we talk we talk about blood quantum when we talk about like animal pedigrees. Um, so like you know, a dog is half 
you know, one breed and half another. Um, we don't generally talk about humans that way, <laughs> except for Native Americans. Right. Um, I was so say, unless you're share, then then you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in um, Native American history, there is this, and and, and it's very still present. Um, this identity of blood, or this this uh, idea of blood quantum, which you know, if you, both of your parents are Native American, you're full blooded you know, then you're, you're half blooded, quarter blooded. Um, and so, you know, I myself am uh, one quarter Native American, of course, I know my blood quantum. Um, but I, I find the idea of quantum so offensive and so problematic, because it is something that divides our communities. There are communities where, um, you know, people are, are discriminated against for being less than full blood or being, um, you know, various degrees of Native Americanness and um, tribal enrollment um, is based on blood quantum. For for our tribe, we we recently had some um, uh, bill that was trying to be passed a around changing the blood quantum to make it, um, I think, more difficult to enroll in the tribe. And where this idea of quantum comes from is from a, you know, colonization standpoint, where if you make it so you can't be Native American, if you are less than one eighth blood quantum, um, then eventually you're going to define the Native Americans out of existence. Which was the goal for a really long time. Right. There's always uh, some ulterior motive, right? Yeah, you know, kill the Indian, save the man was like the motto for a really right. long time, and that is what blood quantum was intended to do: is you're defining an entire culture out of existence in the United States, and mm -hmm. so if you're not Native American, you're going to be just American, just white, and not just white, uh, but Only not Native white. American. Right. <laughs> um, and that's devastating. Like myself, I'm a quarter. My niece, I don't have kids. I don't plan on having kids. <laughs> but um, my niece, um, her, her father is white. And so, you know, she's only an eighth. Her child is not going to be able to enroll in my tribe mm. because they're not Native American enough. And who gets to decide what is Native American enough, especially in a world where we've always defined our identity by culture, not by blood. Mm -hmm. The idea of blood and DNA and these things is completely a colonizer perspective. And our people have never been like that. Like you, you look at adoptions, like even if someone, if, if I decided to adopt a child, I wouldn't be able to enroll that child in my reservation, even if they grew up on the, or in my tribe, even if they grew up on the reservation, even if they were more ingrained in the culture than I ever was, they wouldn't be able to be enrolled. And that is like, so counter to the way that I understand my culture, but we've, we've grabbed onto this like colonizer thing as a way of making those of 
who are able to enroll and those who are full-blooded and like those people get to feel more special and more um i guess entitled to like this native american identity than someone else and i think that that is like just a human problem that is probably across like every identity is that you you want to be the special one um and in doing so you have to make other people less special and it's really sad to me <laughs> and let me tell you the courts in california i know because i adopted a little boy and his bio mom mentioned that she was native american um, so in the court, the longest day of court that I had with him was because she mentioned she was Native American. It had to go through every ICWA tribe or court. I don't know what it, what it is, but every ICWA, we'll say court, um, had to vote on if they wanted to intervene or if they wanted to have Caden placed with the tribe. <laughs> and it was literally like they named every tribe from California to New York, and they had to vote on if they were going to take this child or let the child remain. And there was one tribe in New York that just wanted Caden, my son, to be in a Native American home. And because I had mentioned I was Native American because of the way I was <laughs> raised, that was enough for them. <laughs> and my son, come to find out, is not Native American at all either. But <laughs> because the mom said it, the courts ran with it. Then we had to spend a whole eight hours of of tribes voting on if you know if anybody wanted to intervene. And it, it it's just it's just crazy how the lack of education, and then just how if somebody says it, then it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and ICWA is a really interesting piece of legislation as well. That is so important and so valuable but also a big challenge for our communities as well it um it's something that i've actually been doing a bit of reading on um and you know some of my family was involved in you know figuring out how to um integrate ICWA into you know a uh, child protective services adoption services these types of things in california and it's it's really challenging. And I've talked to people who work for child services who hate ICWA, who find it to be very cumbersome and unnecessary. Um, and I think it's important to realize, like in this case, I think, I mean, I, I don't know the mom, I don't know the family, but like, it sounds like she was using it as a negative thing. <laughs> um, and it gives ICWA a bad name, but it does come from a very good and protective space of protecting our children because we have a, a very long and very traumatic history of people coming to our reservations and taking our babies and, um, you know, claiming that um, the, the babies or the kids are being neglected, um, but really it is just a different way of raising kids than, you know, is typical in um, like American white culture. As an example, um, a, a friend of mine had a, a child and, you know, child services when they were leaving the hospital asked her like, do you have a crib at home? And she's like, no. And so they like, op like they wanted to open a case and it like investigate why 
like this woman did not have a crib for her baby to sleep right. in. Right. And like, all you would need to know is that our babies don't sleep in cribs. Our babies sleep in baskets. We wrap them. And in fact, it is more safe for a baby to sleep in a Yurok basket. Like they're um, wrapped in such a way that they're not able to like suffocate or like right. all sorts of, they're so safe. And so like, it's just a cultural difference. Yeah. And they were they were taking our babies for these things. And um, ICWA was one of these things that protected our families and mm -hmm. protected our babies and um, even parents who were suffering from substance use disorder or, you know, other mental health challenges where they couldn't take care of their kids, um, the babies were being removed from them, understandably for sure. But instead of being able to like have that baby go to their grandma or to their aunt or uncle right. who could raise them in the culture and let them know their mom and like, yes, your mom can't take care of you, but that doesn't mean that your mom shouldn't know you or that you shouldn't know your mom. That's not like how our, our people believe it. So like, um, they, they would take the baby from the community completely. And like, we'd have no idea where they go. And this was just what, what it appears to be is just another way to, um, indoctrinate Native Americans into a white culture, like take them away from their culture, take them away from their language, take them away from their family and their people. And they're no longer Native American. Um, right. And so ICWA, I think, definitely has its challenges. Like it shouldn't be something that people use to, you know, muddle up the court system or to, you know, try to take advantage of things but yeah it, it was funny because when the so the mom ended up she's she's white like me but she they she told us she might be Cherokee Indian and that's what did it well then the 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 court decided I was enough as long as he was raised with somebody who kind of knew my particular culture um so I thought and then, and then, so then the dad, when the bio dad came forward, then the court, what they did is the bio dad was Hispanic. So he came in and said, well, I'm Aztec Mexican Indian. So then it really like, and then they were like, well, that's not federally recognized. So like you're out because, because they want because the one tribe said they wanted him to be in a native American family. Then the dad through the, the Aztec Mexican Indian, which then I think he thought would out, outrank me, um, which it should have. Because I'm, I'm, I'm obviously East Asian now and not Native American at all. So joke, joke's on me, I guess. Um, so I get, and you know, I didn't even think about the whole ICWA and, you know, your, the babies being taken and, and all of that stuff and what they were, what, what their, their intention originally was. So that is even, I never, yeah. even, I never even thought of it. And it makes sense. Like, you know, like you said, your babies are in baskets and your babies may not have, you know, you're just, like you said, it's your culture is different, but that doesn't mean the kids are any less loved or less cared for or anything. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you, originally, when we first started talking, you had said the Native Americans, there's like a mistrust in the medical community. And I want to know with, um, do you guys have the same kind of mistrust with law enforcement? You know, right now there's so much going on with BLM and BLM gets so much attention right now. Do you guys feel like you're, you guys are kind of pushed aside as the mistrust the same as, is is with the BLM community or, or, or similar? Do you, do you guys see that, feel that at all? 
There's definitely a mistrust with law enforcement. Um, I would say, a, like anytime your skin is not white, um, there there are um, prejudices at play um, that unfortunately play out through law enforcement in the most dangerous ways. Um, and, and so, yes, in our communities, especially our young men, um, have experienced traumas at the hand of law enforcement. Um, I, you know, don't know a lot of stories myself, um, but I definitely would not say that we've gone through the same level of trauma that, um, uh, you know, our, our black brothers and sisters have gone through. Um, but we do feel that mistrust for sure. Yeah. I, um, Carrie and I, we ride motorcycles and there's actually a native group out here and they, you know, their focus is around the native American women that go, that go missing. And I was talking to them and I found out it, it's crazy that, that 2,306 native American women were missing and 1,800 of those had been killed. And they said that a lot of that is just lack of awareness. Just lack of awareness is how that happens. And, and, and you know, we don't see when these things happen. It, it's almost like there's never a spotlight for it. I've never seen anything on TV about Native American women being taken or killed or missing in, in these alarming numbers. And it's like, it, it's, it's frustrating and it's sad that we don't, that these women don't get the, they're, they're not on the spotlight like, you know, if it was a white, if, if 20, if 2,300 white women went missing and 1,800 of them had been killed, we, they, they, that would be all we heard about, you know? Yeah. So it's, it, it's just, it's unfortunate and it's sad and it's, I, I mean, do you have any, do you have anything? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, while you were talking, I was also still thinking about, you know, uh, law enforcement a little bit as well. Um, and I wanted to say, um, uh, Again, it depends on your location as far as far sure. as the, yeah. the law enforcement thing goes. Um, I know that in communities where you are on the border of reservation and not reservation, there is a lot of prejudice that um, is directed at Native Americans toward or directed towards Native Americans from the non-reservation community and from the police there. And there's a lot of terrible things that occur there. Um, but on missing and murdered indigenous women, this is a huge, huge issue. And in fact, is um, kind of one of the things that has sparked a, a project that one of uh, my colleagues and I are working on. It is devastating the number of Native women who have gone missing, who have been murdered, and who are just completely forgotten about and not um like the the there's no investigation that happens and it's it's challenging because our reservations are sovereign um we have our own court systems and the way that those court systems integrate with federal court and with county courts and things like that is really complex and so sometimes things get lost because of that and, um, you know, tribes don't have the ability to prosecute non-natives who are 
um, doing things. And so, and so like that is a challenge, but the other thing is, is that we're just left out of a lot of narratives and, you know, our, our stories are just kind of looked over unless it's something interesting and fun that people can, you know, co-opt and, you know, take the, you know, cool fashion of, they don't want to hear about it. Um, there, you know, there was a movie that came out. It was a really popular movie. What was the name of that movie that really highlighted missing and murdered indigenous women? And um, I'm going to have to think of that name of that movie because you should watch it if you haven't. Um, but the 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 project that I'm working on was kind of um, sparked from my time working in urban Indian health um, for for the California Consortium. Uh, for Urban Indian Health, they have a um, program that is called Red Women Rising, and it's focused on domestic violence and gender-based violence um, to address, you know, the the missing and murdered Indigenous women and children. Um, and a very, very good friend of mine at Stanford, who she's, she's also a medical student, and she's also a Knight Hennessy scholar, um she and i were talking one night we were just like chatting uh late into the night as one does and sharing each other's passions um and so she is really really passionate about addressing domestic violence and gender-based violence and i've always been very passionate about native american health and so i was sharing with her about the missing and murdered indigenous women movement and the work that's being done and um you know, uh, Secretary Holland just um, created a, a, a unit uh, in for the United States. Um, I think it's called uh, Missing and Murdered Unit um, to, to address this issue because it's been ignored for, you know, decades. Um, but my, my, my colleague and I um, are working in partnership with the um, Indian Health Center of Santa Clara Valley uh, to, you know, strengthen their um, education, screening, and referral process for domestic violence um, for this purpose, and you know, hopefully, going to be able to uh, put together some um, like strategies that other programs can uh, implement as well. And we're using the work, uh, like taking advantage of the work that other. Native folks have done, um, or other programs that support Native folks, uh, we're we're leveraging that in order to develop this program for the health center in San Jose, and so um, it's really important work, and it is it is a lot about you know education and sharing that this is happening, and but it's also about like raising humans who are good and right. not going to be doing these things that's like always it's... the theme in our podcast really is like you know we always we talk about these really heavy um subjects 
um, and at the end, which I'll probably just present right now, is is you know we we want to like what what can the average person do to help? Um, because it can be frustrating. You know, you hear about um, the issues in the world, and especially well, we we tackle mostly in our country. Um, and how can I, as an individual, help? Like, what what can I do? What can the average person do? Because there's so many people, including myself and Nikki, who are like, you know, well, this is so frustrating, and we want to do something, but you're kind of at a, you know, a you're kind of at a, a barricade, whether you can like actually affect action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that's the thing. Um, I think the first answer to that question is always educate yourself. Um, like to do the work, know what's going on. Um, especially for our communities where we're so often erased from the narrative or the story is changed. Um, you know, revisionist history and all. Um, mm-hmm. But um, on on top of that, like education is always the first step, but it's almost always never enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing is, is that we need allies. Um, <laughs> we need yeah. people who are, are willing to ask the questions because mm-hmm. especially with our community, it's so common that we're not even brought to the table. We don't even know the table was set. Um, And so when you're in these spaces, asking the people in charge, like where is Native American representation? Why aren't Native Americans on this graph? Like I am so tired of like seeing research articles, of seeing news, you know, stories where they show like, you know, graphs on graphs of like things being um, separated by ethnicity and Native Americans aren't on it. And it's like, especially things like COVID, like how could you leave Native Americans off of that narrative? Who like were more impacted by it than almost anyone. And so it's just like, so frustrating to see these things. And it is often the issue that we're not in the room at all. And so those who are in the room have to ask where we are. You know, the person who's putting together the graph of the data ask, where is the native data here? Um, the person who's writing the research grant, the person who's reviewing the research grant asking, why aren't you asking for the Native American perspective as well, in addition to all of the other ethnicities that you've outlined here? Right. Um, it's important to to make sure that you know we're included. Um, the other thing is like in addressing these issues, like particularly, I've you know said multiple times, like the thing I'm most passionate about is health, um, Native American health, is that it's not just doctors or people who work in healthcare who can address this. It is people who are in business, who are in law, who are, you know, in education, um, like health happens everywhere. And so no matter where you are, there's something you can do to address disparities in health, not only in the native community, but in, um, you know, all underrepresented communities in all, um, people who suffer from, you know, various health disparities. Um, there, there's always something that you can do to, you know, advocate for, for people who, whose voices might be left out. 
Um, and I think the most important part of that advocacy, which I think often gets left out of this story, is the best way to advocate is to raise the voices of the people in that community who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, especially on Instagram, I see a lot of people who um, are very passionate about about you know, changing the way the world is, which is not great. Um, And instead of raising the voices of the people of those communities, they're, you know, creating their own narrative, which may or may not speak for those people. And so instead of like, I've loved seeing, I think the first person I saw who did it was Lady Gaga, of all people, um, who handed over her Instagram account for 24 hours to a person Mm -hmm. in the community. And so instead of seeing Lady Gaga's information, anyone who followed her was seeing, you know, stories from, you know, the BLM movement, I think is what it was at that time. Um, And I like, I just loved that because instead of like, hey, listen to me talk about this, Mm -hmm. you're saying, hey, let me sit down and let me, let me show you who you should be listening to all the time on this because you know that's not lady gaga's lead like it should be but i mean she's she doesn't do that work um and so she handed it over to someone who did and i loved that i think that's a super important and humble thing to do it takes it takes um like being able to recognize in yourself like you know this is important to me but i'm probably not the best person to talk about it right um so let me just hand over by, you know, millions of followers Mm -hmm. to this person. And I am sure that so many people heard that story, like, or watched those stories more than if, you know, and it was more impactful than if Lady Gaga just got up on a stage and said something. Right. Oh, that's, that's really amazing that she used her power for good in that way. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up, but I did want you to just kind of add one last thing. And that is, you know, is there, uh, you mentioned quite a few organizations and projects that you are involved in or that you are passionate about. And I was wondering if you could share that with our listeners, um, websites that they could check out any books or authors that they should, um, go check out and, and kind of do that, you know, find that information on their own and do their own research and, and kind of arm themselves with knowledge. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, organizations in California are um, the ones that I know the most about because sure, um, yeah. I love them. Um, I mentioned multiple times the California Consortium for Urban Indian Health. They have a website, sakui.org, C-C-U-I-H. Um, and they do really, really incredible work um, all over California in urban and in Indian communities. And... Um, there's also the uh, California Rural Indian Health Board, and they um, are kind of the rural side of the urban things. Um, they're also doing incredible work um, helping to um, address both public health and um, they do a lot of the, the medical health as well. Um, they're, they're both really great organizations and their websites are very robust with information. Okay, great. Um, as as less of a um, oh, I have to remember the name of the book. It's less of a um, like educational book and more of just a really fun book. 
to read um, that I think speaks really well to Native American, like, will give you like a good idea of like urban Indian um, life. I, I remember when the first time I read this, I was just like, like both in awe, like it was, it was a great book. Um, oh, I remember what it's called. It's called There, There. T-H-E-R-T-H-E-R-T-H-E-R-E-T-H-E-R-E. <laughs> there, There. Um, and it's by Tommy Orange. And it's it's it came out not too long ago, but it's just a really good book. Um, it came out in 2018. It's a good read um, and super interesting. Um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is another book that is, um, a little, a little harder to read, but worth the read. We will put, um, yeah, we will put links to all of this in our, um, uh, podcast episode description, along with a picture of you and any other things that you may or may not have sent or that you may have sent us. Melissa, was the movie we were talking about earlier was it Wind River? Wind River, yes. Nikki was that searching a, it out. Oh man, that's a good movie. In we'll fact, watch that. I watched that with uh, my partner, and he was uh, taken aback by it. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. after it ended, I was like. Oh, this this is like everyday life, right? <laughs> and so, like, I, I really encourage you to watch it. Like, it's it's I mean, it's an incredible movie in its own right. But mm-hmm. uh, when you when you watch it, like, realize like this is not Real just life. a right. Yeah, it's not yeah. just a fiction. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Well, Melissa, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I really um, would love to follow up with you on some other things that we've touched on, but we didn't get to really go into a lot of depth on. Um, it sounds amazing. Let us know how med school's going. And uh, we want to see um, all of the amazing things that you do for, for the world and for your community. Um, and we just really appreciate you taking, giving us your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Grabbing the Mic with Nikki and Carrie. Tune in weekly for new episodes on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we appreciate when you like, subscribe, and comment to let us know the content you like us to bring back to the podcast. Click on the links in the podcast bio and grab some Grabbing the Mic merch. You can also visit us at dgfgllc.com for new updates and sign up for the Grabbing the Mic newsletter. Have a great week, everyone.